0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I am Ben Luke. This week was a museum collection taken from Kherson in Ukraine by Russian troops for safekeeping or as war loot plus O'Quium Wazor's posthumous Sharjah Biennial and photographer Ming Smith at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. As we approach the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the art newspaper has published an investigation that raises serious concerns that works of art taken by Russian troops in occupied Ukraine may not be repatriated once the fighting ends. Our London correspondent Martin Bailey tells us about the story. Plus, the Sharjah Biennial opens next week and is the final biennial curated by Okwi Mwazor, who died in 2019 but set the blueprint for the show entitled Thinking Historically in the Present. We talked to Nadine Khalil about the biennial and Sharjah's place in the Middle Eastern art ecosystem. And this episode's Work of the Week is Invisible Man Somewhere Everywhere by the American photographer Ming Smith, a key piece in a new exhibition of Smith's work at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Ola Onabanjo, the curator of the show, tells us about the work. Before all that, why not take advantage of our latest subscription offer? You can save up to 40% on a digital subscription in our January sale. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the code JWEB23. That's J-W-E-B-23. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, Later this month, it will be a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Throughout the past 12 months, alongside the devastating loss of life resulting from the invasion, cultural organisations have expressed concern about the fate of heritage in cities across the war-torn country, from historic architecture to museum collections. A new investigation by the art newspaper focuses on works of art taken by Russian troops from a museum in Kherson in November and dispatched to Crimea. So, were the paintings moved for safekeeping, as the Russians argue, or were they taken as war loot, as the Ukrainians believe? I spoke to Martin Bailey, our London correspondent, who broke the story. Martin, we're going to be talking about Kherson. Can you remind us where Kherson is?
1: Yes, Kherson is in independent Ukraine, uh, but it's near the border of Crimea, which fell under Russian occupation in 2014. So, it's really been on the front line of the present conflict, which has been going on for nearly a year.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's a port city, isn't it? And it's at a capital of a particular region, the Kherson Oblast. And one of the things that I'm really conscious of is that just this weekend I was reading about Russian shells being targeted on Kherson as we speak, effectively.
1: Yes, and of course, it's also got a good art gallery uh, and museum, and uh, that's what we're here to talk about.
0: Indeed, yeah, very much so. So, tell us, Kherson Regional Art Museum is the museum in question. Tell us about the museum, what are its contents, how many works does it hold, that sort of thing?
1: Well, it's a general art museum. It's got a very good collection of both Ukrainian and Russian art, And the deputy curator said that there were 10,000 paintings taken from the Kirsten Art Museum just before the Russians left. That seems an unbelievable number, so I suspect it probably includes other artworks, such as works on paper and prints and possibly coins. But it is a very good, or it was, a very good regional gallery. And is it right that it includes icons? Uh, Yes, it has an important collection of icons, which were actually saved when the communists, who took over Ukraine after the uh, Russian Revolution, uh, they closed the churches and the icons were all brought from the area to the art museum. So it preserves an important part of the religious history of the area as well. So tell us what happened in November then? There was severe fighting near Kherson, and the Russians realized that the Ukrainians were advancing. And one week before the Russians actually left Kherson, they went to the museum and took almost all of the paintings. Now, at the time, the Russians said to the museum curators um, that they were being taken for safekeeping, and they were indeed removed and sent to another town in Russian-occupied Crimea.
0: Right. Now tell us about that incident then in in November. It sounds extremely well organised from what you report. Yes, it
1: was. I mean, there were Russian troops present. There were also art historians who were obviously trained and other people to assist. And it seems to have been a group of up to 40 people who came and they arrived at the museum, knocked on the door, the museum was closed, and said they wanted access to the store and were indeed given it. And it was that point that the paintings were simply removed and put on trucks. That huge number of paintings being moved in a very short period of just a few days was obviously not what museum curators would normally allow. So uh, one just hopes that too much was not... Damaged uh, during that very quick removal. And of course,
0: this idea that it was for the safekeeping of the artworks is dubious in all sorts of ways, isn't it?
1: Well, it's a difficult decision and it would be easier for me to make a judgment if I was on the ground. I'm not sure that the Kirsten Museum store where the paintings were was bomb proof. I'm not sure that it was a, a sufficiently bomb proof basement. On the other hand, there are huge risks in moving the paintings and particularly at, at short notice. As it happened, uh, the museum wasn't bombed and the paintings would have been safer there. On the other hand, um, events might have been different. Of course, and then there's the issue about who has the right to keep them safe. Indeed. And the people at the museum, well, they were originally uh, a mixture of people who supported the Russian side and those uh, who were against the Russian side. So I think museum staff were divided and those... Who opposed the Russian occupation had been eased out or had been sort of forced into fleeing to Kiev, the capital. So it was a complicated situation. And
0: of course, if if Russia is saying that they are taking these things away for safekeeping, the Ukrainian position is obviously the opposite of that, isn't it?
1: Indeed. And the Ukrainian culture minister visited Kyerson shortly after it had been retaken by Ukrainian forces. And he was horrified to see the empty storerooms and described the removal as a war crime. Right. So we'll come on to the war crime or not aspect of this a bit later. But where were they taken, first of all? They were taken to a city in Crimea, which had been occupied by Russia since 2014. It was the city of Simferopol. And there was a museum there where the pictures were deposited.
0: Right. And it it sounds like the storage situation there is not ideal for pictures, is that right?
1: No, it sounds very inappropriate because the paintings are apparently being stored in a concert auditorium, which is part of the museum. That's not the best place to store old masters and important paintings. Right. So your investigation
0: is not just about the fact that these works have disappeared from Ukraine and gone into the annexed Crimea, but the fact that there are certain people involved who have direct links to Putin. Who are we talking about here?
1: Yes, I mean, one worries about the future and what's going to happen next. Now, the director of the museum in Simferopol is Andrei Malgin. And I looked him up on Putin's own website And to my astonishment, his name appeared twice. And he had had two meetings with Putin, with a small group of people. Once in 2014, and the second meeting was as recently as March 2021. What do you know about those meetings Well, there's actually a transcript of the conversations, and uh, one can hear what Malgin said. He was obviously supporting the Russian side very strongly, and he was selected, if you like, to be included in these small meetings with putin and The comments which are on the website are actually rather telling and perhaps I could read one yes, and go this ahead, is yeah. this is the official English translation on putin's own website, so it's not our translation. In the meeting in March 2021, Malgin praised the recent Russian military incursion into Ukraine, arguing that its purpose was to defeat Nazism. And Malgin said, and I quote, Seven years ago now, and I interject, when Russia took over Crimea, we too faced a reviving Nazi ideology. This is the main reason why today we are part of Russia. Unquote. And then Putin actually responds to Malgin and said, thank you very much and I wish you every success. So that doesn't exactly augur well on Malgin regarding Ukraine as the rightful place for the paintings to be returned. On the website, Putin's website, I actually found photographs of Malgin and Putin talking with each other. So that really brought it home, what had been happening.
0: And you had another really interesting quote,
1: which indicates that this isn't Malgin making decisions here, is it? Yes. Immediately after the paintings had arrived in Simferopol, Malgin talked to the Moscow Times, which is a newspaper published in Amsterdam, and he was asked about accepting the paintings from Kersen. And Malgin said, quote, Due to the introduction of martial law on the territory of the Kherson region, I have been instructed to take the exhibits of the Kherson Art Museum for temporary storage and ensure their safety until they are returned to their rightful owner. Now, that seems, on the face of it, quite reasonable. But the key question is, who is the rightful owner? And is it Ukraine, where the pictures came from, or is it Crimea which is under Russian occupation okay, so just to be clear, he's using that
0: term instructed there, which yeah. and you 've uncovered his links to to putin yeah. so the, one would imagine therefore that that is pretty firm evidence that he has instructions from
1: superiors to
0: remove these artworks as a systemic process, basically.
1: Well, I'm not sure about the systemic process, but um, certainly he was instructed and he talks about um, martial law. So he was presumably instructed either by the Russian armed forces or the governments that they are supporting. So he is instructed by the Russian government side and he's saying he had no choice. In his view, one suspects from what he said and what he said in the meetings to Putin, that his view of rightful is unfortunately Russia. But I don't want to prejudge it. The future will give the answer. And let's hope that Malgin comes round to the view that uh, they came from Ukraine, and that is rightfully where they should go.
0: So let's move on to the situation relating to international law here. What does UNESCO say, for instance, about artworks being removed
1: from one state to another in these sort of conditions? Well, UNESCO's position is enshrined in the 1954 Hague Convention and its protocol, uh, which has governed how artworks should be treated during armed conflict. And actually, both Russia and Ukraine have signed the UNESCO Convention. The convention and the protocol says that when the occupation ends, that's after an armed conflict, the state must return cultural objects to the formerly occupied authorities. So it's clear that UNESCO's position is that when the armed conflict is over, and it's not yet over, then the artworks from Kherson should be returned to that city. Right. So what do you think then will happen next? Well, one hopes that the conflict will be ended, the armed conflict, because um, uh, nothing is going to happen to the artworks in terms of return until it's over and there is some sort of settlement. And let's hope that's sooner rather than later because of the human tragedy involved. After the conflict is over, one presumes that the Ukrainian government in Kiev will need to take all sorts of actions to right wrongs which were committed during the aggression. And one presumes that they will take up the question of the artworks and uh, demand their return to Kirsten. Right.
0: Lastly, I wanted to, almost as a coda to our discussion that we've just had, I wanted to ask you about the history that you've looked into, because I think it's very instructive about what happens to cultural property during war. Can you tell us more about the history of Simferopol?
1: Yes, I mean, this goes back to the Second World War, and it's actually an astonishing story. But important paintings, and there were at least 70 of them, from the museum in Aachen. Now, Aachen is in Germany, but near the Dutch and Belgian borders, so it's the far west of Germany. During the war, there was concern that those paintings in Aachen would be bombed, by the Allies, by the British and the Americans. And they were removed for safekeeping. And they were sent to Meissen, which is near Berlin, uh, and which was seen as less vulnerable. Now, towards the end of the Second World War, the Red Army of the Soviet Union moved and occupied um, that area of Meissen. And they took the paintings from Meissen and removed them to Moscow, so they went thousands of kilometres from, first of all, Arkan to Meissen and then Meissen to Moscow. And then what happened in Moscow? Well, the museum in Simferopol had actually lost its collection because their paintings were also removed for safekeeping and sent to another port in Crimea, which again was bombed and the paintings were lost. So Moscow generously wanted to support the museum in Simferopol, which had lost its paintings and sent them thousands of kilometres again to Simferopol. It was too embarrassing to show or display the paintings, so they were merely kept in store in Simferopol until a few years ago. And when it was revealed that um, Arkham's paintings were there, Arkin initiated discussions to try and recover them. Well, those discussions ended when the Russians occupied Crimea in 2014. So it's a very complicated story, but it just demonstrates the problems in wartime, and whether it's a good thing to remove paintings for safekeeping or not, and all of the political manifestations. And the Russians took the paintings because they'd lost so many soldiers and civilians during the war, and it was seen as uh, some sort of recompense. So very complicated, but um, history sort of is in danger of repeating itself.
0: Indeed it is. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you very much. You can read more about this story and our extensive reporting on the war in Ukraine at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. Coming up, the Sharjah Biennial and Ming Smith at MoMA. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. Public access to Tate Modern's viewing gallery could be restricted after judges on the UK Supreme Court found that the gallery constitutes a private nuisance to neighbouring flats overlooked by the gallery. In a majority decision issued on Wednesday, the court ruled in favour of the owners of four flats in the Neo Bankside building, which has floor-to-ceiling glass windows. In doing so, the judges overturned two earlier rulings and found that the residents faced an unacceptable level of intrusion, akin to being on display in a zoo but emphasised that Tate Modern's viewing gallery was a very particular and exceptional use of land. The design of the Blavatnik building, which opened in 2016, was known and had received planning permission when the flats in question were sold for around £4.5 million. The death of a Vatican cleric has put his lauded but mysterious art collection under new scrutiny. The elderly canon Monsignor Michele Basso died earlier this month, prompting renewed questions about how he obtained the works. In 2000 Basso was investigated for fraud by the Rome public prosecutor after allegedly trying to sell fake works disguised as originals using forged documents. The collection of about 70 works, including pieces by Gaccino and Giambologna and a vase bearing the name of the Greek artist Euphronius, had until 2020 been stashed in Basso's home near St Peter's Basilica. He reportedly donated the collection to the fabric of St Peter, the institution that's responsible for restoring the basilica that same year, which was also when Pope Francis launched an internal financial investigation into the accounts of the fabric of St Peter. Basso is not thought to have been wealthy enough to buy the works and claimed that he'd been given them by generous people. And finally, a host of new acquisitions have been announced by museums. The Musée d'Orsay in Paris has acquired Parti de Bateau, or Boating Party, a major impressionist painting by Gustave Caibot thanks to the luxury goods conglomerate LVMH, which paid 43 million euros for the work. The National Gallery of Art in Washington DC has added an untitled painting by George Morrison, a member of the Grand Portage Band of Chippewa, to its collection. It's the first work by a Native American artist added to the museum's important collection of the New York School. And London's National Gallery was the buyer of the Neapolitan Baroque artist Bernardo Cavallino's painting of St. Bartholomew at Sotheby's in New York on the 27th of January. It was acquired with funds from the American Friends of the National Gallery for just over $3.9 million with fees. You can read all these stories and much more on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This February, discover the collection of the legendary Andre Leon Talley at Christie's New York. The live and online auctions feature Mr. Talley's signature caftans, among other haute couture, works by Andy Warhol, Chanel, handbags and jewellery and mementos reflecting his personal relationships with fellow fashion icons like Karl Lagerfeld, Diana Vreeland and Anna Wintour. Preview the works at the Rockefeller Centre Galleries from the 10th of February and in the meantime, browse the sales online and explore Christie's related features at christies.com/ondreleontelly. Welcome back. Now, few people have transformed the landscape of contemporary art as much as the late Okuy Nwazor. The Nigerian-American curator created a series of hugely impactful shows that challenged the dominance of white Western male artists and instead privileged post-colonial perspectives and encouraged a polyphony of global artistic voices. Before his tragically early death, aged just 55 in 2019, Nwazor began to assemble one last show, the 15th biennial in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates which opens next week. Called Thinking Historically in the Present, the exhibition features more than 150 artists from 70 countries. who Al-Kasimi, director of the Sharjah Art Foundation, has said that Enwazel began developing the show in spring 2018, and it thoroughly embraces the post-colonial lens Oki championed, and explores how various histories continue to shape our present through the work of the participating artists. I spoke to Nadine Khalil, a writer based in Dubai, who's a specialist in art in the Middle least, about the biennial and Sharjah itself. Nadine, we're going to talk about the Sharjah biennial. It's a very special edition because it is the sort of posthumous biennial curated by Okwui and Can you say something about your discussions with Hu? I know you've spoken to Hu al-Kasimi, the director of the Sharjah Art Foundation. What did she tell you about that? Well,
2: I mean, this is interesting because actually, I profiled Hodel Kasimi when I was editing a regional art magazine called Canvas in 2018. And already then, she told me about how, when she first saw Akwe's Documenta 11, it completely blew her away and changed her life in a sense. It was a life changing moment for her because at the time, she was studying art at the Slade School, and then she was on a gap year and happened to be in Berlin with her father and was told that she needed to go and see this documenta and she had never heard of this event before. And when she saw it, um, it really affected her her curatorial vision. At the time, she had grown up with the Sharjah Biennial, which was around since 1993, um, but she only took over um, much later, I believe in 2002. And the question that she asked herself was why don't we have A documenta like that here, you know, in the region, in Sharjah, in the Gulf, in the UAE, or in the global south. And so her question was, why do I have to go to Castle to see this kind of art? And so she kind of wanted to work with what she had. And then, you know, she started the Sharjah Art Foundation in 2009. uh, And already she had changed the biennial format, which was much more of an international art fair that followed the Cairo model you know, with different forms of national representation. And it was in 2018 that she invited Okui to be part of it. And so, yes, I spoke to her last week. And, I mean, at the time of 2018, she was obviously, you know, still preparing the 2019 Treasure Biennial Edition, which was the last edition I saw, and it feels like so long ago. But, I mean, in order to tell this story, we also need to look at her relationship with Okui and how that has happened over a long time. She mentioned to me on the phone that when she did the Venice Biennial for the UAE, the UAE Pavilion. It was in 2015. That was also when he curated the Venice Biennial. So her relationship began earlier with Aqui. And then 2018, she was at the Dakar Biennial with Salah Hassan, who also directs the Africa Institute. And she just couldn't stop thinking about getting OQI involved. And so it was at that time that her and Salah went together to Munich. And OQI was just very excited about it. He was excited by the Serja Biennial, which he had been part of the jury for a long time. And he was excited about the idea of a biennial becoming an institution. And he accepted to do it.
0: Before this conversation, you shared with me a text which Okwi had sent to Hua al-Qasimi. Yes. And in it, he's very interested in exploring the very nature of biennials. And in a way, it's not a disillusionment he's expressing, but I think he really wanted to prove that biennials had a purpose and wanted to give them a very distinctive purpose, which it seems to me taps into what you're saying about who are needing the the Shah Jah biennial to have a very distinct role and a cultural significance, if you like.
2: Yes, correct. And it's also this idea of contextualising a South-South discourse. In 2005, there is a recorded conversation that Okwi gave at the March meeting, which, when it was still a symposium, and this symposium around the biennial soon developed in, into its own discursive format, into what we now know as the March meeting in 2008. So there's a lot of context I feel that needs to be added to how the Sharjah Biennial got here today. I mean, it started in 1993, but completely changed its format when you know who took over and when the foundation then became an institution. And so in this talk, he talks about exactly this title, thinking historically in the present and the implications of the post-colonial, which is a term that can be widely dismissed. He talks about how there is less of a dislocation for someone like him, a Nigerian, in places like Sharjah and New Delhi. And he talks about how we, and I say we in a very large sense of we, Uh, Experience the destruction of time on the inside. So again, this idea of a South discourse, not always looking outward to the West or projecting from the West, but speaking to each other in the way that we have been relegated in the region. So he talks about this idea of multiple temporalities and historicities. And I kind of understand that as a Lebanese who's grown up in Nigeria myself. I understand this anxiety of the West, as he puts it. And he made this incredible statement even today where he says the anxiety of the West shouldn't be the center of how we interpret time and space and that the West is the only place where authenticity has not been troubled or touched by these dislocations, which I feel is a very provocative statement. And then he left us with this question, how do you experience dislocation from the inside? So, I mean, all this is to say that Aqui was, you know, very much close to Hur intellectually. And she says about how every time, you know, she was in Europe— she would just go straight from the airport in Munich with her suitcase to his apartment. So they were very close. And, you know, he even advised her to call the Africa Institute when she decided to establish it with Salah Hassan in 2018. The Africa Institute and not just Africa and Diaspora Studies. So he was, a, I think, a real mentor in many ways.
0: Of course, one of the great things about as a as a curator of these grand shows, these vast discourses through art, is that he was able to not just bring into play all sorts of intellectual discussions but also create great moments of physical art of visual experiences and that seems to be very true of this biennial just from the glimpses that we've got of what's coming because there's a vast number of commissions happening major works by artists from across the world and also existing works but it it seems to me that it's terrifically ambitious just the scale of it is terrifically ambitious
2: Yes, I mean, you know, honestly, it started much smaller. This is the largest biennial to date. I think it's something like what Hua told me was 163 artists, and you can double that in terms of number of works. They started with this idea, so it was conceived by Okui with some keywords given to the artist to reflect on around this idea of the post-colonial constellation, which he's written and published about. They started with this idea of 30 years, 30 commissions. It then grew after his death, to much larger because who wanted to see it as more of a collaboration with artists that both they have worked with separately and together. And then she only had funding for 30 commissions, but then she sought uh, partnerships with other institutions, and that's how the Biennial has come to take this form. Its ambitiousness goes beyond the number of works, but also it kind of relegates itself to space where she is exploring regions that she hasn't before, such as Khorfakan and an area of the UAE that I personally have not experienced called Avdeit. And she has some emerging and established artists taking over some abandoned places as well. And I can give you more details if you're interested.
0: Well let's focus on maybe a couple of things I know like from my discussions just with a couple of artists who are based outside of the Middle Eastern region so for instance I spoke to Doris Salcedo, she's doing a major new work which is using trees to create this kind of house effectively which is about migrants and about the movement of people across the world and never having a fixed home and never having a fixed place which is theirs and then you have John O'Confra who's just been confirmed as the British representative in Venice, he's doing a new film and I was able to just see glimpses of of the materials he was using for that when I visited his studio. And it's about viruses and the new world, as in the, the colonial, the settler colonial experience in the Americas. So you get a sense from that of, of the artists who who are making major new works for it. But tell me about the artists that you know of.
2: So yes, Basil Abbas and Rowan Aburahmi are doing a new mixed media audiovisual installation in the ruins of a heritage house in El There is Moza al-Matrushi, who is an Emirati artist based here, who really believes that we can learn from nature, and she's been working with beekeeping for a long time. And so her work actually turns it back, like showing what we can learn from local farmers and beekeepers. So it's more like a kind of school and then I'm really excited about Marwa al-Mugayt, who's a Saudi artist who works with performance and choreography. And she did this like amazing video projection in 2021 in Saudi in a park, looking at the people who were there, migrant workers and their stories in different languages. And she's doing something along those lines, but here in the UAE, working with people here. And then, of course, there's Tanya al from Lebanon that's doing a performance in a completely new market that has not been used before uh, called al jubail market it's an abandoned market that could has also protected from demolition and then lastly i would really like to highlight asma bil hamar who's another emirati artist who really works with this idea of architectural history and she's doing a fascinating intervention in the courtyard of sheikh khalid bin Muhammad's palace which is an abandoned palace which actually shows that the migrant workers who build this place left imprints, left their own patterns and the design of this palace as a form of authorship, which can be traced back to the Sindh region, which is now a province in Pakistan, but was previously a part of British India. So again, it is this idea of the Sharjah biennial looking at the communities that exist there in Sharjah from elsewhere, who are part of the makeup of that society. And how can they include their histories and their stories that came through, you know, migration, labour, and in the past, slavery as well.
0: It all seems very much in keeping with both the traditions that Okwi established within his own curating, but also, of course, as you say, very special to Sharjah. And I wondered if you could give us a flavour of how Sharjah differs from its neighbours, if you like, the other emirates and so on. Is there a different atmosphere in terms of the Sharjah art world? Is there a sense in which they are very distinctive?
2: I mean, just before going into that, I think it's important to just mention one thing that Hur told me is that initially Okwi wanted to do a historical exhibition about the post-colonial constellation. She put together a working group that advised her against it. She also did not feel it was her place to do something historical. And basically, Okui at the time, before he passed, was working on a trilogy of art around the post-war moment, the post-colonial moment, and the post-communism moment. So before he passed away, she asked him, what should I do? And he said, you do this exhibition. That was in March 2019. So it's very, very important to really clarify that this, in her mind, is a collaboration between her and what Okwi would have done, not what he initially planned to do. I think this is quite important to note. But yes, regarding Shaja, it's interesting that you say that. It was kind of like how Okui said that he you know, felt at home in Sharjah, even though he's from elsewhere. It really is about a multiplicity of communities. I would say it is probably the most—I mean, for lack of a better term—authentic place in the UAE. And you know, there has been this um, kind of cultural stereotype of distinguishing Sharjah from Abu Dhabi and Dubai. What we call Dubai Las Vegas—it's a lot more of this commercial kind of hot spot of galleries. And Sharjah really fits into this idea of what the art world could look like in the region, it kind of, I think, stood out for its, you know, more traditional forms of architecture. You see more of the community there, whereas, you know, Dubai is very international, and Abu Dhabi is a little bit, I guess you could say, more of like the institutional kind of hierarchies exist there. But the thing is about Sharjah, it's a relatively conservative community, I would say, compared to Dubai. And, you know, it's it's hard to stereotype them because they are changing. For example, in Abu Dhabi, the Cultural Foundation has been reopened, curated by Reem Fadda, who, you know, formerly did some work in Palestine, and she, at the International Academy of Art, and like, basically, the Cultural Foundation was the center of literary exchange, and so that's being brought in. There's also Warehouse in Abu Dhabi that's a lot about mentorship and community and process-driven research, and I feel that is a space that really has resonance with the way Shaja started. And Dubai, I would say, really is largely market-driven now. Parata has opened, Galleria Continua has opened, ICD, Brookfield, though, is kind of doing a little bit more ephemeral interventions. And then there's literally only one artist-run space that I know of. There was one in Abu Dhabi that closed down called Beit 15, and it's called Beit Mamzar, and it's like situated, I guess, between Dubai on the way to Shaja. So, Sharjah was always kind of more thoughtful and global in its programming, but also more discreet, I would say. And it has, you know, the Sharjah Art Museum Authority, led by Manal Ataya, has up to 16 museums. It's really about telling our own histories. And I, again, say our in a very macro sense with the Berjil Art Foundation, for example, that has a very discursive uh, way of showing its collection of modern and contemporary Arab art funded by um, Sultan al-Qasimi. And so there was always these discursive platforms like the March meeting. And, you know, Sheja has also a lot more than just the biennial. There's a film platform, there's Focal Point, Art Book Publishing... Perform Sharjah, which has just now been headed by Tara Abdel Fattu, who has worked in Beirut, who has worked in, you know, Brussels, who has worked in Abu Dhabi, and now also a new music program started by Hassan Hujeri and photography as well. So I guess to sum it up, Sharjah always seemed like a more grounded, site-specific way to engage with the international art world from home, because I've gone around in a lot of circles. Hopefully that makes more sense. It's looking outward from within, basically.
0: Nadine, that's great. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was great to speak to you.
0: The Sharjah Biennial runs from the 7th of February to the 11th of June. Now, it's time for this episode's Work of the Week. Tomorrow, the 4th of February, the Museum of Modern Art in New York opens the exhibition Projects Ming Smith, which it describes as a critical reintroduction to a photographer who's been living and working in New York since the 1970s. The show's curated by Thelma Golden, Director and Chief Curator at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and Ola Onabanjo, Associate Curator in the Department of Photography at the Museum of Modern Art. And I talked to Ola about the work Invisible Man, Somewhere, Everywhere, of which There are two versions in the exhibition. Ola before we start talking about the particular picture, I'd like to get a sense of where Ming Smith was at as a photographer when she made this image. Tell us about, if you like, her origins within photography, but also her kind of professional progress through photography at this stage.
3: So the image in question, Invisible Man Somewhere Everywhere, appears or kind of comes into focus about 20 years into Ming Smith's career as a photographer. You know, she lands in New York in the 70s, a really propulsive and energetic moment for artists and life in the city, but quickly becomes engulfed in the steaming debates around artists and blackness, particularly so, and Uh, Lou Draper, then the foreman of the Kamoinge Workshop, a collaborative of Black American photographers, really invested in thinking about self-determination and photography. He invites Ming Smith to become a part of the group and she becomes the first woman member of the Kamoinge Workshop in 72 or so. And so during this time, she's really taken into this collaborative space, but also really is not only making pictures out of that context. She's living downtown. She becomes friends with Lisette Model, also Grace Jones. She's both in front of and behind the camera, working as a model to support her artistic practice, but most importantly, really taking pictures on the streets of the city and in various contexts. You know, as she continues throughout the 70s into the 80s, her images become more abstract, more experimental, really interested in kind of mining movement, light, shadow. And I think a lot of that also comes from her being a dancer as well as a photographer in this time. She's a student of Catherine Dunham, who during this moment in New York is really bringing forth a sense of diasporic practice in movement and dance. And so Ming Smith becomes a devoted practitioner practitioner of her dance and i feel that becomes really necessary to the way she starts looking looking for the quality of movement as much as the quality of light so of course all of these kind of interests are aligned with a love of literature and plays so you know the interesting thing with invisible man somewhere everywhere is that i feel it's a real cipher for a lot of her interests Because it's an image that she makes in 1991, while she's actually at the Hill District in Pittsburgh, making pictures for another series. So she's making two series at the same time. One is August Moon for August Wilson, which is around 60 pictures made in 1991. But also... Invisible Man, which is kind of a response to that really tectonic and visceral prologue of Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel.
0: Can you say more about the novel, Remy, and and its influence? Because it's a a seminal text, and we recognise it as such now. But what was its impact in that period where she was making this work? Had it achieved that status by that point?
3: I mean, I think, you know, Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel is one that really operates as a lodestar for a lot of African-American and, frankly, artists who are interested in thinking about the post-war era and its impact on the psyche of Black Americans. Of course, that novel is set in Harlem, and Ming at the time is moving between Harlem and Pittsburgh. So you see the interest of, you know, thinking about the everyday practices and movements of black Americans, a dedication to being in black neighborhoods, in the spaces that black people occupy and live their lives. She's kind of resisting a sense of spectacular or even straightforward clarity, but she's really interested in what it's the psychic life or the possibilities that one can have access to when we're thinking about photographs or works of art generally that are thinking about the interiors, the interiority of black life.
0: There's particular formal techniques that she's using to carry that message, isn't she? Because th- there's a lot of blurring. Absolutely. There's, this, as you say, a kind of pronounced interest in a kind of abstraction, but also, you know, she's pushing the limits, if you like, of of certain techniques within photography, Right.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I I really appreciate that observation because I always like to say that, you know, Ming Smith shows us As much what exceeds the frame, or she hints to what exceeds the frame, as she does divulge what the photographic apparatus can offer us. So her images are less about kind of capture, that crisp sense of documentation, but more about the emotive capacities of what an image can render. And I think that's where, you know, she's very well known for her crisp and deft command of the blur. So that's, you know, produced when one is slowing down your shutter speed on the camera to give you a long exposure. So images become these kind of mercurial, movement-oriented spaces where, you know, the, the stride of a foot to the hunch of a shoulder become these really open, almost engulfing spaces.
0: And, of course, the title of this photograph that we're talking about says everything, really. It's a really great title, I think, in the sense that, of course, it evokes Ellison's book. But on the other hand, this idea of somewhere and everywhere means it's a specific image, but it's also an every image, if you like.
3: I think, yeah, you said it really well. And I think it's an invitation, as many of her images are, to think about the image as beyond what it exactly is showing you. So exactly, you know, this is an image of... A so called invisible man, but it's also about the state of invisibility, how that is constructed, how that is relational, and how that, yes, can be communicated in this particular image, but also is experienced in various contexts.
0: And tell us about the scene that we're looking at.
3: I mean, this is an image of an individual walking down a snow covered path. You know, I Ming mean, Smith talks about this image being made during the first snowfall of the season, so you have a sense of newness or kind of a burgeoning aspect of a new season, that being winter. The individual is somehow hovering on this threshold of visibility and invisibility between light and shadow, illuminated from the back, you know, moving towards the individual behind the camera on this snow-covered path with street lights kind of illuminating their right side but then a large building on the left side that really kind of almost swims in front of and behind the image so that gives you a sense i feel of the kind of mercurial indeterminacy that she is interested in but also offers a sense of possibility because light is ever present right of course photography is a medium about light but i think particularly so for ming smith on a conceptual level
0: In the text that you've written about this work and about Ming, you say something really powerful, I think. You say it's a visual manifestation of structural oppression. And you relate it, of Mm -hmm. course, in saying that to Ellison's book. But say more about that.
3: You know, I think when one is committed to thinking about and making pictures about experiences of blackness within the United States and in many contexts beyond, because Ming Smith makes pictures throughout her career that are beyond the U.S., But that all being said, it is one that is not always going to be about joy and lightness. It is one that acknowledges the difficulties, the marginalized experiences of African Americans in this country, but brings them together in a sense of complication, trying not to resolve, but like bear witness to how individuals, in spite of challenges, structural inequality, histories of violence that speckle throughout the history, of this country still individuals sustain. Right? This is something that Ming Smith really holds as central to her photographic practice not to look away, but also not to think of violence and the spectacular sense of violence as the end all be all of the African American experience.
0: I mean, it's incredibly powerful as an image representing surveilled bodies, right? I mean, that's the the thing that really struck me when seeing this image again, was how often we're seeing images like this, which are part of a news story about systemic violence. And it strikes me that that was an extraordinary feat of Ming Smith's here, because it's a very specific image again, but also it has a means of speaking to a very particular issue, which, as you say, is often spectacularised.
3: Absolutely. I think this is where Minx Smith's ability to bear witness and to think about her photographs as sites of exchange, sites of continual engagement rather than straightforward documents that are taken, but things that are made together in relation is really necessary to kind of augment the way we look at her pictures.
0: One of the things that's sort of admirable about Ming Smith is is her modesty, I think, about what she does with photography. Quite often she will say things like, I'm just really concerned with beauty, you know. And one knows that her photography is doing so much more than that, but she's really genuinely quite modest about her achievements, isn't she?
3: I mean, I think this is what makes her a really wonderful photographer to collaborate with, to think with, you know. It's been an absolute honor to one author a text about this specific image one can imagine, which I feel is kind of scratching the surface of the world of images that she's produced throughout her life, but also with the forthcoming exhibition here at MoMA that will open on February 4th and run through May 29th this year in 2023. I think, you know, there's something really admirable about an individual who has all of these experiences, all of these gifts, and really you know, refutes a sense of her pictures being cerebral. I think the fact that she has moved through her spirit, moved through her emotions, really allows her to think of her works as part of this vocation, this calling, right, to witness. And when one is working from that place, it makes it so much easier in some ways to bear witness to her practice and her work because she thinks of this as beyond her there's no sense of this
0: being an ego project when one thinks about Mingsbeth's pictures. Going back more to her techniques, uh, I know that there's a thing that she talked about where, by happenstance, when she was doing kind of a workshop, effectively, with Lou Draper, she arrived at what she called raggedy edges for her photographs. Uh-huh. And she, she Actually, it was an accidental thing, it was serendipitous, and yet somehow... She liked that quality. But I'm just looking at the reproduction of this image. Is this one of those images with a raggedy edge or is it actually a a rare example of a straight-edged image?
3: Yeah, I love that story. I think it's so important. I also feel like it tells us a lot about what was happening among artists sort of in the 70s and the 80s, you know, People were making things out of what they had, what was possible, what was accessible to them, right? And this is a moment when you've got Lou Draper, who's the master printer of Kamoingi Workshop, working with Ming Smith, who is like a young photographer, really kind of trying to make ends meet. And Negative Holder is broken, right? So they make Negative Holder out of cardboard and there, you know, becomes this really fantastic manifestation of the edges becoming irregular, right? And so I think MoMA is particularly fortunate because we have two prints of this picture in our collection, right? We have a smaller print around 13 by 19 inches that does have slightly raggedy edges printed by the artist, but also has on top of that kind of hand-painted flecks, speckles of auburn, right? Mustard, even a little green around the edges that she started adding to her pictures, starting around the 80s to what she feels kind of take her pictures to a different level. And I feel like these additions kind of give you a sense of the wind, the movement in the picture. We also have a print that's significantly larger that was printed in the 2000s. And that is expansive huge kind of a window into her world and of course may not have exactly the same raggedy edges one imagines but still gives us a sense of kind of ming smith's acuity of vision her her interest in resisting a sense of narrative right but opening worlds to us
0: lastly i wanted to ask about ming smith's position in relation to the Gay workshop because it's a really interesting point that she made that she feels like a loner that she on the one hand is absolutely part of this collective she's the lone woman in this collective in that there's a wonderful photograph of the group with her as the lone woman but then at the same time she's in the west village and most of her peers are in harlem and so on in the show are you able to both suggest the kind of dialogue she was part of and also pay tribute to her personal vision and distinctive vision, if you like.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about a solo exhibition is that you're able to really centre the artist, give them room, give them space to kind of manifest their idiosyncrasies, their possibilities that they either gestured towards, you know, didn't manifest or turned elsewhere. And so to me, I feel, particularly for New York, you know, the home of this artist since the 70s, this is an opportunity to demonstrate how crucial she is to our histories of art, to the many generations of artists who are her peers and those who come after her, you know, ranging from Carrie Mae Weems to even Jatavia Gary, a younger video artist here in the city who's got a show forthcoming as well. But I think what I would say with this exhibition project, we're trying to show you how Ming Smith looks. You know, this is an exhibition that's really trying to be a portal, you know, that there are images from the 70s through the 90s. But I feel that her images are very contemporary, they're still very fresh and relevant. So we're trying to, you know, extend an invitation to you to join us and looking with her and thinking with her.
0: Well, Ola Ramey, thank you so much for telling us about this extraordinary artist.
3: Thank you for your time.
0: Projects Ming Smith is at the Museum of Modern Art in New York from the 4th of February to the 29th of May. Ola Remy's excellent text about the photograph is in the book Ming Smith, Invisible Man, Somewhere Everywhere, which is published by MoMA and priced $14.95 or £17 and that's it for this episode you can find us on twitter at tan audio and on facebook and instagram of course the week in art is produced by amy dawson and david clack and david also does the editing and sound design thanks also to daniela hathaway and to our guests martin nadine and honor amy thanks to you for listening we'll see you next week bye for now